I do want to provide a trigger warning for this podcast. This episode contains conversations about suicide, which can be very distressing. If you would like resources or support around this topic, you can call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, connecting individuals with crisis counselors for emotional support. Or perhaps you might choose to skip this episode altogether. Either way, we believe that your well-being is much more important than getting more downloads for this episode. I feel so honored that you are listening right now. Your time is valuable. And out of all the podcasts that could indulge your curiosity, today, or at least in this moment, you are choosing to be here with us. That means so much. Thank you for not just being here, but for being you. We hope that you will enjoy this interview on Curiously with me, your host, Erica Graham. In this episode, I sit down with my dear friend, Joshua Carney. Josh is a pastor that I have admired for a while. And when we first met, we became fast friends. Josh has talked open and publicly about his manic episode that landed him in a treatment center earlier this year. Although Josh is still making sense of his new diagnosis, he is willing to be honest about where he is and what he has gone through. A little bit more about Josh, and I kid you not, this is the bio that Joshua said I must read. <laughs> Joshua was a pastor for the University Baptist Church in Waco, Texas for 15 years. Under his leadership, he wants you to know that church attendance actually went down. He would also like you to know that he has published no books. Josh currently serves as the Chief of Staff for the Waco Family Medicine Foundation, a FQHC that aims to bring high-quality primary health care to Texas's most vulnerable populations. Now, I want to warn you a little bit about this interview. This interview is really more of a conversation than an interview. So it might flow a little bit differently than some of the other episodes we have done on this podcast. However, I thought Joshua's story was important, especially in the world of pastoring where so many pastors suffer with mental health issues in silence. We also talk about lighthearted subjects like our Wisconsin Badgers and Nickelback the band. So here it is, my conversation with somebody I admire and adore so much. Joshua Carney. All right, today we have an amazing human on the podcast. His name is Joshua Carney, or as I call him, Josh now. And you corrected me recently. You told me to call I did. I don't know why I list, you know, it's like my work emails, Joshua. And so people don't know me start with that. And I don't know why I would do that. I should just do Josh. Yeah, well, you told me recently I could call you Josh, so yeah. Josh it is. So we have Josh Hardy on the pod, coming to Curiously, and um, I have just admired you, Josh, 
from afar, even before I knew you. Um, I knew that you were the head pastor at UBC in Waco, and I had just always admired the community that you led and the way you did it. And then I got to know you and learn that you are a Wisconsinite like myself. That's right. We are Badger fans together. That's right. Well, um, a really deep, serious question to kick off this interview, and that is, how does your body feel when I say the words, Bucky Badger? Um, well, first of all, the the admiration is mutual, so thank you for that introduction. Um, I feel immense pride, but I'm not an alumni. You're an alumni. And so I feel like you have a stake that is um, so much more substantial. Yeah, but you're a fan. Like, I, I, I want the Badgers to win, but I, when I watch a sporting event, I don't know the score. Yeah, Badgers are number two for me. Packers, then Badgers, then Bucks. I can hear your Wisconsin accent when you say Packers. Yeah, my A's. I still carry the vowels. Like Packers and Badgers and Bucks. You know, the one one I would preach was charismatic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I grew up a charismatic. Oh, yeah. You know my mother, who's a huge diehard Badger fan. She's one of the biggest. She is, and she has a hardcore Wisconsin accent. Yeah, that's one of the things to love about her, though. She's she has the whole oh gosh oh yes don't you know yeah. oh yeah, yeah I'll be right over and if Deb De, I mean it's just one of the ninety nine reasons Deb's so endearing so <laughs> hey I just want to say though like um, everybody's a homer but anytime you look at a list for best college cities anybody who does their objective homework with Madison Wisconsin comes out number one it is so, a great place to live and grow up it really is yeah uh, but let's the, just make sure that's on the record I will say. Um, the winters are long. Yeah, well, that's how champions train and endure pain. That's what you do up there. <laughs> I mean, the summers are hot here. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just as miserable <laughs> down here. All right, now that we got that serious question out of the way, softball's coming now. Um, Josh, you were a pastor for mm-hmm. a decade. 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. Head pastor for a decade. Oh, yeah, college- I think that's right. They moved me to lead pastor. And And you're still a pastor, let's be clear. Even though you're not uh, leading and working at a church, um, you'll be a pastor the rest of your life. And anyone who knows you believes that. But what do you miss most about leading a church? Mm, Leading a church? Not much. (laughs) Being a pastor? Okay. Um, You just just, uh, pick the one thing that was hard. I don't think I'm a great leader. Um, So I miss... The well, like I, I commented to you when we talked about sermons a few times recently, that I I missed the design piece is what I would call it. So when I was a computer science major in college, one of our professors said the fun stuff is not writing programs; it's thinking about it before you start. And I think that's true for me of preaching. It was the imagining the the narratival pattern that might unfold, um, and how I might get there mm. before I'd actually craft anything. The other thing I I miss is um, kind of. Also, like implementing a rhetorical strategy, um, I think a lot about the prologue in John one, and um, I just think it's such an apt metaphor, obviously to describe God. But um, if I were to pick a metaphor for God, I can't imagine a better one than Logos or Word, um, because I really do think that language is so potent and powerful. And so I miss having a reason to be thoughtful about how I use language in a public forum like that. Yeah. Um, and then beyond the pulpit, I miss. Um, just the sense that somebody would just walk up to you and hand you their life 
in um, such a holy way, you know, yeah. to hold and to care for. And that still does happen to me in some contexts, which is, I think, maybe what you're alluding to in the fact that I'm still a pastor. Um, but yeah, that's what I miss. But there's lots I don't miss. Yeah. You, I mean, you mentioned that um, we talked recently and um, first of all, you're somebody that I can just call. I love that about you. Like there aren't a lot of people. We live in a texting society, right? And I can mm-hmm. just like call call Josh on a whim. And I did that one day. Uh, I took Jet to the park, and um, I don't know what your sermon prep process was like, but mine was mine is active. It's like when I'm moving, I'm just like chewing on ideas in my head all day, mm-hmm. which is good and bad. Like it's good because mm-hmm. it's adaptable. It's bad because maybe I'm not as present as I should be sometimes. But um, Jet was at the park and chewing on this idea of we're opening this series on women in the Bible. And I give you a call. I'm like, Josh, what are some good leads, some good stories, some good characters in sermons that you've done before on different women in the Bible? And you just like, to me, spewed brilliance my way. And then you followed up with like a text on different sermons you've done and different angles you could take. And it was so helpful. It made me, first of all, so excited about the series that I was already excited about. But um, you are, you're really brilliant, Josh. And I mean well, that. I, so to to be a little unabashed, I do think I have a really good memory. Um, and so, and and I've had that feedback before, so I'm willing to, to own that. Yeah, but you, I think- quote, you quote people just on the fly. Yeah, but I think that was also preaching for 15 years, right? The best way to understand something is to have to teach it. Mm. And so whatever the way my brain works, it's, I guess I internalize things that I'm are going to at some point be output. Um, and I think one thing too, through pe- preaching for 15 years, it really gave me a sense of how the text is trying to talk to itself. And so I, it really structured what the Bible is doing. And so I think for that reason too, I was able to hang on to um stuff just random stuff like that because it was all contributing to something larger so it yes but josh i'm gonna push back here because yeah you do have a good memory probably but you also create from your own creative genius and i know this because you sent me a letter that you had constructed between elizabeth and mary for a sermon and it was all kind of this a modernized version of if Elizabeth and Mary were sharing their pregnancies with each other. And it was hilarious. And it was all your creative genius. So I think you probably have a great memory. And you also create from your own creative genius in what you do. Well, thanks for saying that. I think one thing that was always really important to me was I had a sense that how, at how many places in our society will people still show up and give you the gift of their attention for 20 to 25 minutes? Like that's so rare, especially in a larger group setting. Yeah. So um, the creative creative element was always really important to me. It, it was a, a driver for sure. Um, and it was sort of the challenge each week is how can I make people see this text? And I actually thought it was harder the, the more um, familiar the text was. So I always hated like the prodigal son and stuff like that. I just thought, oh, people already under- think they know this. And sometimes they do, right? And I have a, a generous um, hermeneutic, so however people want to interpret stuff is fine with me. But uh, I, I always thought those texts were harder. So I think that pushed me to think more critically about the text. And I had a really good mentor um, who opened up the world to me. And, and I read a lot of sermons. Um, I read 
you know, of course, everything Barbara Brown Taylor did, Fred Craddock. And I made that part of my devotional lifestyle for 15 years, too, as I would read poetry and then I would read sermons. Mm. So I, I owe a debt of gratitude to people who did it better than me before me. Uh, you know, um, when I, you, you graciously invited me to preach a couple times at your church in Waco, Texas. And I didn't know that much about Waco. I'm born from Wisconsin. I live in Houston now, but hadn't really been to Waco. And uh, I, what I knew of Waco was really Chip and Joanna, right? Mm-hmm. Like what, what the country, I think, knows about Waco. But when we lived in Waco for a week and a half, um, me, my husband, Garrett, and Jet, we, I, I fell in love with Waco. I think it's such a cool place. It's so unique. You had us to your home. You have a beautiful, amazing wife who's a teacher. You have beautiful children. You were fostering children at the time. And I remember um, driving home from your house and my husband and I were talking about y'all. And he was like, they're just like probably the nicest people I've ever met. I mean, they're (laughs) nicer than me. And I I remember he got offended. I was like, yeah, they are. They are nicer than you. Um, (laughs) But but I, I say this because I had such I had put you on such a pedestal. And still do. And you just have this beautiful family. You're smart and funny and all the things. And recently, you um, came out about an experience that you had in March, which was a manic episode and a new diagnosis for you. And to me, and I think for so many others, it made me admire you even more, the seeing your humanity because I had already really admired you, but I wondered, like, how can a family be this perfect? And can you talk a little bit about what um, you just recently spoke publicly about this experience? Can you talk about what it's been like? First of all, taking that step of vulnerability to expose something that you're actively working through still and making sense of still. And also the response that it's garnered. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the kind things you said, especially about my family. Um, so to be just a little more precise, um, in, in it would be April, I was admitted to a mental health care facility. Um, and I was, yeah, it's tough to say. Um, and one of the things I'm reckoning with, was I really suicidal? Um, but that was one of the things that was articulated when I was admitted. Um, I had been up for 48 hours at that point, but had been on a, a series of probably five or six weeks of two to four hours of sleep. Sometimes I get a little bit more. Um, and of course, that was spun me out of control. I did have a manic episode, lost my memory from that week. Um, only rediscovered only discovered that through texts I would stumble upon or people who would communicate back to me during that time. Like, hey, you know, um, which is very sobering, right? Because as, as I already alluded to, I love being able to remember and have, have a lot of my identity that's built into being able to do that well. Um, and then didn't, um, would the people that texted you back, like say, Hey, you're not acting like yourself or like, was, was your self preservation totally gone? Like, um, yeah, I, I think so. And by the grace of God, most of that interaction was with my wife. Okay. Um, but, um, 
yeah, I, I had somebody articulate to me like a whole conversation we had that was pretty critical and I didn't remember any of it, didn't even know I was there. Um, and so all the, all that to say, I actually didn't even know till I got out of the, like I was getting checked out and I looked through my paperwork and it said bipolar, like nobody had sat down and said you're bipolar. And so when I met with my psychiatrist, um, right, after but you the were fact, an inpatient, they didn't, they diagnosed you with this and didn't tell you. Well, um, so this is why it's a little complicated. Um, so I had a mixed episode of mania and depression. And, um, one of the reasons that's so scary is because most people who are depressed, and this is a psychologist explaining this to me, and I'm just going to be candid, but obviously if somebody's dealing with this, you know, we express some utmost care, but he said, um, most people who have depression are, don't have the energy to kill themselves. But the, the potency and the danger of the mixed episode is that you have the the low of the depression, but you have the erratic behavior of the mania. And the, uh. so you're especially, um, so I pressed my care team because then I got the insurance paperwork and it also said bipolar. And the answer he gave me was, um, look, like if I just gave you something for depression, you could spin off into mania permanently. Um, so he said, we're treating you with an antipsychotic specifically Done. to deal with this. And if I don't code you this way, if I hand you off to somebody, they could screw it up. That and so then I asked my new psychiatrist the same question. He said the same thing. He said, the best we can tell you, this is what you have. Um, and so, so basically it was like, we know the correct treatment. So we have right. to give you this diagnosis to give you that treatment. Right. And, you know, the thing I've discovered is that mental health care, like really all medicine is subjective. Sure. And so... Um, you know, it could be that if I saw 10 psychiatrists, seven would tell me that I'm bipolar and three wouldn't. Kind of a deal. Got it. Um, but the antipsychotic has been very effective. Um, I think the bigger thing, though, has been for you know, my my wife immediately read a book. That's what she does, right? Ooh. And I think for her, there's just a lot that has made sense about my history now. Right. Um, and the other thing that would be interesting to talk to you about is all this was coupled with alcoholism. So I had quit drinking cold turkey. Um, I remember, I remember when I had dinner at your house and you were curious about why I didn't drink. Yeah, remember that. So I knew, you I knew for a, a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that complicated things because there's also a residual effects of withdrawal. I got treated for alcohol withdrawal when I was in there as well. Oh wow. Um, and so it's just so hard because in terms of my epistemic center, there were so many things at play in my body at the time I'd lost an unhealthy amount of weight in a very short amount of time. Um, my physiological behavior was absurd. I was exercising three times a day. Um, and that of course had a toll on my body. And then there was, and the were thing. people affirming that? Were they saying like, Josh, you look great. I know women, yeah, of course, time for we're sick. Yeah. They're like, what are you doing? You're looking great. And sometimes it's like, uh, well, life is unmanageable. Part of the reason I was relieved in writing the post, I was just, it felt like I was lying to people. Um, and I never did, but like people would be like, well, you look great. What are you doing? And I actually was doing a lot, but the truth of it was I lost about half of my weight through, through a mental health crisis. Right. Right. And so, um, and so yeah, you're like, oh, I'm working out more and I'm eating better. But also I had this manic episode in March where I lost an insane amount of weight. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, now it's out Definitely. there and I can just point people to the post. I'm like, if you really want to know, go read, go read this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I'm trying to think of your question had scope. 
Um, you no, know, sorry, I've been interrupting. So you were at um, uh, Lindsay had started reading. Where were we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there's just a lot of my history. Um, you know, yeah. you and I had talked. I called you in the middle of this at one point because you had posted something about eating mm-hmm. and exercising, and so I was dealing with both of those things and wanted to make sure I was approaching those in a healthy way. But there's just a lot of quirky behaviors I have now. And a lot of that actually, you know, speaking of preaching, the the most consistent comment I got about preaching in my 15 years of doing it is, wow, that's a really different way of looking at the text. Well, now I know it's because my brain structures is structured differently and naturally pr- approach the text differently. Um, but there's also other quirky things that were happening all the time that it's now it's like, oh, it's because of bipolar. Mm. Yeah. So, that's actually had some explanatory power and relief. I think I know for me and I think also for my wife. Yeah. And how you can harness, um, I mean, that this same way that your brain works, it gives you this gift to be able to deliver the sermons that you do also can have the power to be so self-destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I are both threes. And so one of the things we share in common is we're at the center of the shame triad. And so uh, that was the the major say initial. More about that. What is it? So we're both um, Enneagram threes. What do you mean center of the shame triad? So um, the heart triad deals with shame. The thinking triad deals with fear. And then the gut triad deals with wrath or anger. Yeah. Um, and so that's our, our primary. I don't, I don't even remember the language. But so that was. Enneagram threes go to shame. I, you're educating me. I didn't know this. But that yeah, makes- that's like the, the thing we have to overcome the most. And so um, I knew that was going to be a problem from the get go. And it was. But one of the things Lindsay said to me early on, which is true, she said, like, look, um, you are who you have always been. Because, like, when I saw the diagnosis, I was like, holy shit, you know, like, I, that's huge. But she's like, well, it is. But I've been married to you for 20 years and you've always had this. Wow. That didn't change. It just you hit Skid Row and <laughs> had a manic episode here. So, yeah. um yeah, I think that was comforting, helped me kind of get through some of that shame initially. But, um, you know, you ask about going public. Um, I had was given the gift of being not just able, but encouraged to be pretty raw and honest in the pulpit for 15 years. Ta-da. So when I posted that and just was pretty raw, it didn't feel hard and it still doesn't. And I, But I also think that's another part of the brain thing that I don't connect to that and way maybe other people do. Um, for me, it just felt like a life update. Um, and I have thought, well, what if I couldn't get a job in the future because I self-disclosed I had bipolar? I guess I could see something like that catching up with me. Um, but other than that, I just, I don't know. If we're going to destigmatize the thing, then I'm just going to not act like it's a big deal because I don't feel that in my body. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So it wasn't hard for you to hit enter on that. Like your heart wasn't pounding. No, not at all. Um, and I mean, I think for me and maybe a myopic about this, like I was writing a post about my wife and about how great she was. Um, yeah. The, the narrative drama was just the fact that I had bipolar, but that wasn't the po- point of the post. It was how yeah. great she is. Yeah. Well, that's so like you to not center yourself. That's just who you are. You. Well, I have plenty of selfish moments, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for saying that. No, it's true. I think. I think to a gift with any kind of like addiction or diagnosis or realization is just like, I, I remember being in a car once and driving past um, some unhoused people at a stoplight 
And um, I, I think some people think, oh, they should get a job or, you know, they, they have these ideas about what they're, oh, they're, they can't give them money. They'll just spend it on their addiction and which may or may not be true. But um, I think a gift in kind of reaching a rock bottom is that you have no choice but to see yourself mm-hmm. in in these other low moments that other people are experiencing. Yeah. And- well, uh, two things come to mind. One, I just turned 40, 42, so I'm very much cliche and that this hit me hopefully at least at midlife um, if I can make it that long. But then the other thing is, is you know, um, Sus- one of the things that Suzanne Stabile teaches about threes is that they need to fail and they need to fail big to really grow. Mm. Um, and so pain is the great teacher, right? And so- um, You know more about the Enneagram than me. For for listeners that don't know about the Enneagram, it's a personality typology and Josh and I are both threes, which is called the achiever, right? Yeah, it depends on who you ask, but yeah, that's an apt description. Okay. Achiever, performer. Uh, and, and threes hate being threes, right? Like, do you well, cringe at yourself or no? I, I understand the cringy, but then I think about being any other number and I'm like, no, thanks. Oh, really? Yeah. See, seven to me, sevens sound like I like want to be a seven, but I'm not. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I probably want to be a seven because like. I It does seem carefree. I'll give you that. But yeah. it also seems chaotic to me. <laughs> okay. But um. anyway, so Su- Suzanne Stabile says that you have to fail epically when you're three to make a yeah, change. Yeah, that's your salvation as a three is to fail. Huge. Okay. And I think what's really being, it's, I mean, for all of us in some sense, but it's like the stripping away of the ego finally to get to your, and I remember I first learned Enneagram from Richard Rohr and, um, you know, he, he talks about the flip side of the, the coin for the three is obviously like we're, um, we're pretty like you get a shell of us, right? We're, um, sort of fake people at our worst, um, we're put on, we, we have a mask all the time, but like the, the growth is like we can become some of the most robustly authentic people and offer beautiful versions of ourselves. And I think that is when I've had fleeting experience with that sort of redemption, it's very attractive and I would love to grow into that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in all Enneagrams, there's like in health and unhealth, right? Right. Because um, the thing about the three is, you know, we are repressed and we lead in affection or our heart. But so when we can get to that health and we can recover what we lost as, as children, we can really bring heart better than anybody else. Mm. Um, but it's not very common for us to get there. Mm, interesting. I know, um, and and we've talked about this before, but I haven't mentioned this on the podcast. And as we're talking about rock bottoms and being threes, I know um, one of my bottoms was um, when I first moved to Houston, I was addicted to a prescription medication and abusing it regularly and at, at an insane amount of milligrams. And there was one night in particular, Garrett had had an away game. He was playing football at the time and was was out of the state. And I was in this apartment by myself and it was like 1 a.m. And I had taken way too much. And I had just had an interview at PricewaterhouseCoopers Um as an associate a couple of days prior, might've even been the day before. In what field? Um, it was going to be an HR. Okay. And I didn't know many people in Houston yet, but I really connected with this one girl that I met through the interview process named Amy. 
And I was in the apartment alone. Um, I started to have some auditory hallucinations. And I just was afraid, quite frankly, that something horrible was going to happen to me. Um, okay. That I had taken way too much this time. And I thought about calling an ambulance, but then it would like really make my addiction real. And I was still living in denial. Like, oh, this is the last time. Every time was the last time, right? It's like an alcoholic with drinks. Like, oh, this is the last time, right? And it never is. So um, I called Amy. I think it was 1 a.m., might have been midnight. All I know is it was really late. And she came and got me. And I told her I was really sick. I didn't tell her the truth. And um, I asked to go to Ben Tobb, which is like a huge hospital in Houston. And I was admitted. My blood pressure was insanely high off the charts. Um, And they wouldn't let me go home for a while until somebody I knew was there um, when I got discharged. And Garrett was gone. And so I called my mom from that hospital bed. And she didn't know the extent. She, She knew that I had been struggling with this, but you know, uh, was she in Houston at the time? She was in Wisconsin. Okay. So she flew in to get me at Ben Tob, and um, even then, that you know, that night was chaotic, and I had gone to so many ERs in the past. Like this was a routine I did, um, and and the doctors would know me at the ER, so I had to go to a different one every time because I didn't. I didn't want them to know that I was back, but I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to die that night. And yeah. um, the so, the prescription I was abusing, it's like hard to overdose on, but you get to a high state that is like, um, you, it can induce a psychosis. So um, anyways, this pattern was insane and unmanageable. And yet it took me a while to finally come to grips with like, I have a problem. You know, this is not working in my life. But as I hear you say that about um, Suzanne Stable, that's so been true for me. And that, like, you only change until you absolutely have to sometimes. Mm-hmm. And even then. Because uh, you're gifted at, you know, pantomiming your way through life. And, yeah. And you can, it's the mask, right? Right, yeah. If you would have known me, you would have never guessed. And I, I think that's what drew me to your story so much is like, wait. Joshua Carney is struggling with this like this 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 perfect family and he has foster kids and he has amazing children and is this a brilliant preacher and everybody adores him that I know you mean he had a month long episode where he struggled with mental health um, and really lifelong now that you know about it but an intense it, it, it you reached a rock bottom in March, it sounds like. But if that your story really resonates with me personally. So Yeah, and I, I mean I hope that's a byproduct of of the post is um normalizing brokenness. Boom. And that sort of vicarious understanding that we can offer each other in our suffering. Yes. And and have people reached out to you telling you their stories? Has oh, yeah. been like which was just weird because, I mean, I get it, right? It's like it feels safe because they know that I've been to whatever hell they're they're going through. But um, I, I'm by no means any 
kind of mental health expert. So people would tell me these stories of like, oh, wow. Like, have you told anybody else about that? Like, you probably should get help. Um, and so, you know, it's like I said, it. I always feel honored to be handed somebody's vulnerability. Yeah. But in, in this case, like, you, you really need to talk to somebody that can help yes. you with it. So. Um, so tell us, Josh, what you're up to now. But we've alluded to the fact that you are no longer a lead pastor, but what what are you up to yeah. now? Yeah. So one of my good friends is the CEO of a, um, it's called the FQHC. It's a federally qualified healthcare center. Um, we serve 25% of McLennan County's population, and we basically do Medicaid, Medicare, uninsured. We'll see anybody. So we're primary care. You know, the emergency room can't turn people away. We're like primary care that can't turn people away. But um, we're one of the rare birds in that um the more money you put into primary care, the less money you spend on the back end, right? Um, for me, going to multiple ERs really hit home for you in your in your current field. Yeah, well, you, if you're, but you're a private insurance payer, so it was probably good for the hospital. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, um, I needed a break from ministry, um, and he, my friend, recruited me. So I'm the chief of staff for the foundation. Um, we're building a 65 million dollar building. And um, we're really excited about what it's going to mean for the community. So I'm doing that. It's a total change of pace. And y'all serve uninsured and insured? Yeah. Um, yeah. So our payer mix is strategic, right? If we just, everybody came in and was uninsured, we'd fold. But um, we, we the, actually, the federal, the FQHC, I think the largest one's in Houston. So um, oh. we look down there every once in a while. But um, yeah, so we do better than a normal hospital Medicaid and Medicare. Those are our cash cows. Okay. Um, and that's for a number of reasons that I'm not going to bore your listeners with. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. So no, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And what I, made you want to leave your role? I would imagine 15 years. Yeah. There were a number of things. Like I said, I wasn't a great leader. Um, well, what the, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that you were not a great leader. There are different kinds of leadership, and I am one of them. And I think the church was growing into a season where they needed a different kind of leader. I think I also. Why do you say you're not a great leader though? Like that? Uh, because I don't like managing people at all, at all, at all. So okay. my favorite author, Wendell Berry, he wrote a book called Nathan, Nathan Coulter, and there's a line in there where it says Nathan hated being a boss and having a boss, and I deeply resonate with that. Um, but I right now I'm have a boss and I'd much prefer that scenario than being the boss. Okay. Um and so um anyhow, I think too I something I was theologically confused, but the church was evolving so fast. Um socially, uh politically, theologically, and I just got to a point where I'm like, I don't know that I'm evolving in the same way. And so it wasn't an animosity thing, right? Like I was glad yeah. for the church and obviously I led it. So it's, if anything, my fault. Um, but I just felt like, okay, this is time. Um, it's hard was, to leave things. Yeah. I mean, to, to know when it's time and trust it and step oh, in. Oh, I would wake up. Like once I finally decided I would wake up, like jolted out of sleep, panicked, like, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to let go after 15 years? It was hard. And, it, you know, I took me three years to make the decision. I mean, I've been yeah. thinking about a long thing, but. Yeah, it's a major decision. And change is so awkward and filled with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Plus, as Enneagram 3, sometimes our identity 
gets so wrapped up in what we do. That's true, yeah. It makes sense that this decision would take you a while. All right, Joshua, now it is time for rapid fire questions. And knowing us, they are not going to be rapid fire. They're going to be slow turtle questions. So let's do the slow turtle questions. Here they are. Okay. When was the last time you talked to your mom? Wednesday. My mom, we have a garage apartment. She lives there three quarters of the year. So we're pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Your mom is awesome. I've met yeah. your mom. Yeah. Um, what's your go-to dad joke? Um, what the fish say when he swam into the wall? What? Damn. <laughs> that is, that's a dad joke. That's true. Yeah. Can I tell you my best joke? Yeah. Um, and you're welcome to reuse this. I probably okay. told it to you. I told it to everyone. What is a DJ's favorite pasta sauce? Oh, can I guess? Um, <laughs> I know I'm not going to ask too much. Waste time. Go ahead. Mera, mera. You're welcome to reuse that. Garrett Garrett begs me not to tell that. I'm like, it is so good. No, that's pretty bad, Eric. So good. <laughs> um, The best song on your high school playlist. See, you're laughing. You just well, admit it. I'm laughing because you joke. think it's good. I can just imagine you in certain contexts telling that joke, it is thinking it's good. You know, you know who would think that joke is funny? Deb. Deb would think that joke is funny. And you are going to become your mom. No. Uh, yep. I mean, she is aspirational in many ways. So I was going to say, there's a compliment there. <laughs> uh, the best song on your high school playlist? Oh, you know, I love you too. And they're my favorite band. But it's kind of a dry spell, 96 to 2000 when I went in high school. Um, okay. I would, you know, the song keeps coming. I had his closing time by Semisonic. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great song. I would have thought you'd be like a Nickelback high schooler. Oh, what? A Nickelback or maybe like Incubus. Wait, that's like the worst. I love thing. First of all, all the hate on Nickelback, I don't understand. Oh, man. Why? Why? Well, it's that whole genre, right? It's like Creed, Nickelback. Even It was like Linkin Park, some of those bands. I think yeah. they became a trope of a certain kind of bro, you know? Okay. All right. Well. Let's, I'm glad to hear you Nickelback. <laughs> I mean, at the time. Do they sing that photograph song? Yeah, look at this da, 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 photograph. photograph. Oh. Yes, they're they're good. Whatever. All right. Well, I'm, they got a fan. Um, the best part of your morning routine. Um, I walk three miles every morning, and wow. then I come back and I read poetry, and it's very. Holy helpful. cow! You like really have a robust morning routine. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Do you write poetry? No, I read it. Who do you like? Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah, you said that. What about you Mary? Know who wrote a, you know who I just read, though, that I was I really enjoyed? Uh, Margaret Atwood wrote a book of poetry that I thought was beautiful. I love that answer. Three-mile three walk and then you read poetry. Wow. Mm -hmm. yeah. Every morning. But I'm sure you'll understand this. Um, like... With the bipolar, like exercise just isn't for, like for vanity or for health. It's like part of my salvation. Yeah. It's like a productive way to use my body. Yes. Yeah. I've always, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but I've always had an interesting relationship with exercise because I, 
was a compulsive overexerciser as yeah, yeah. a teenager. So much so that I got these stress fractures and um, was doing it to reverse a binge eating disorder that I had. And um, so my my relationship with exercise has evolved and changed. Right now it's like, well, I'm 20, 38 weeks pregnant. So I'm like, right now I just like try to take some steps during the day. But um, but yeah, I think it, it can be such a healthy tool. There's so many, like anything, it can be used, it can be helpful, it can be abused, it can be all the things. Yeah, I um, just to kind of show the utility of exercise. So uh, one thing about bipolar is it does not just bad things that can send me spinning. It's good things. So I I played and won a poker tournament last Monday, um, but it was three hours and that kind of stimulation and intensity. And I, even though I won and it was positive, I came home and I just was like, you know, and so then I went and ran and it was much better. Oh, awesome. So yeah. it's, it's really a form of grace. Uh, Garrett was in a dart throwing tournament recently. Okay. Right. And apparently he was really good at it and he came home and he's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but like, I'm really good at darts. <laughs> <laughs> He kept coming up throughout the night. He's like, oh, I just had this one throw, and it, it, I'm hilarious. I was, I was like, Garrett, I can't hear about the darts anymore, but I'm really happy that, like, you had such a great night. You discovered a new... I love it. He he was surprised how good he was, basically. Ted Lasso right there. He, he also said that other people were drinking more than him, so he was unsure of, like, if he was as good as he thought, but... Well, you have to do it again. Ron, yeah. Um, favorite movie of all time Tree of Life what is Tree of Life I, I um, movies. so Terrence Malick's the director and most people don't like him he actually is from Waco bizarrely um, he just his strategy is filming 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 and then he like makes the movie and the editing but Tree of Life is a take on Job um, and I saw it in a moment you know, like books and movies are right time, right place for me. Yeah. And I, I, because usually people who try and do religious anything, it's just so bad. <laughs> but um, he is so subtle and his reach for the ineffable is just so beautiful. Um, his so reach for the ineffable. I love that you said that. Uh, yeah. It's Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain. And oh. I rewatched it finally because it's a commitment. It's like, yeah, it's it, three hours. Uh, and it's been well, called and it's heady, and okay. you know you're reading art, and I I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but it's you're interpreting art. It's a poetic experience. It's not yeah. like a, a thriller, right? It's not yeah. clearly linear, but it's to, it is to me if you know what he's doing with Joe. Got to be in the mood for that, right? Yeah, it's like a part of your morning meditation type thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, Tree of Life. It's gonna be on my list. Um. This is my husband's question for you. And the reason I keep talking about Garrett in this interview is because you you know him and Garrett is very fond of you. And, and I'm, um, there's a lot of admiration. He's my only friend that was first team all Big Ten. <laughs> well, so here you go. Yeah, you, you all have a bond. Uh, this is Garrett's question for you. Six feet of water, polar bear or shark going to win? Okay, well, you sent me this question ahead of time and it's the one question I researched. Um, because of six feet of water, I'm going to say the shark. Um, oh, okay. And actually anything up to three feet of water, I'm going to say the shark. Oh, wow. 
But so um, after would, that, when would it be the polar bear? Oh, anything below three feet. Polar bear's got the shark for sure. Okay. The question that Garrett or- originally gave me was six feet of water, polar bear, shark, and I read that as would you would you rather be in six oh. feet with oh, a okay. polar bear or shark? Yeah, no, I thought um, I thought of the, they fight each other. Yeah, so yeah, that's that was the correct interpretation apparently. Okay, but let's do the reverse. Six feet of water. Would you rather be with the polar bear or shark? I'd rather be with the polar bear. Really? Yeah. Wouldn't you? The shark, you're dead. I don't know. No, the shark. Like, I feel like sharks don't always eat humans. Like polar bears. Like, I don't know. I don't um, know. I, I assume that each either of us going to have a predatory posture in this scenario, and you're like trying to. Uh, take your chances okay okay yeah yeah well joshua carney it was so fun having you on curiously today seriously i love talking to you thanks for coming on well i was honored to be asked i apologize to the guests ahead of time if they just had gotten used to your blockbuster guests and then there was this are you kidding me people don't know this but before the interview we were talking yeah and josh was like yeah i don't know you'd have some big people on this podcast and and i was telling josh you know he is truly and i mean this one of the most brilliant, creative, thoughtful, charismatic people I've ever met. And I mean that. Well, thank you. Um, that's kind of you. Well, I look forward to um, listening to this and all the other ones you do in the future. So, Likewise. Thanks, I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you. You have a gift. Oh, well, thank you. All right, friend. All right. All right, Josh. Thank you. I hope this interview will help you approach your day, life, or even this hour a little more curiously. Thanks for joining us on Curiously with me, Erica Graham, and my producer, Danny Hooper. We hope you will subscribe and continue to listen wherever you get your podcasts.